Psalm 89. And we'll read together verses 1 through 37. And the word of God reads, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, your, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his thrones as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Here ends the reading of God's word. Good morning. Welcome to Pacific Hope Church, specifically if you're a a visitor here today. We all, the Makeup Pacific Hope Church, welcome you in the name of our glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, Yeah, it's the 4th of July, but we won't be talking about the 4th of July. We're here to exalt Christ, so open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Revelation, and I will read verses 1 through 8 with the hope of getting through verses 1 through 8. We didn't accomplish that task last service, so we won't accomplish it this service either. But we'll get close. It's a great thing about expositional preaching. You just pick up where you left off the next week, yeah? Again, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not revelations. It's not the book of revelations. It is the book of Revelation. Which reads, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear 
and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Please join me in prayer as I uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again with the privilege that I have of declaring your word and the blessing we have as sinners saved by grace to corporately join together in the worship of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that you would enable me to communicate the truths which we have just read together with clarity. Nothing in my own strength, nothing in my own might, but only by your Spirit. I pray and ask that you would grant your dear people the eyes to see and the ears to hear. That any presuppositions, Lord, that have been adhered to over the years, perhaps that are in addition to the text, would be left here today. We would all have teachable spirits to come before your glorious word. That your people would be greatly edified to know who the one is who holds history in his hand. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper said, quote, There is not a single inch of the whole terrain of our human existence over which Christ does not proclaim mine. End quote. And indeed, beloved, there is no ruler, there is no king, there is no government, there's no despot or power that is outside of God's control. He's the sovereign. All unseen powers, be they good or evil, are subject to the rule and to the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the perspective of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now many Christians find revelation to be intimidating. They find it to be the most difficult book in the Bible to understand. But the book of Revelation, although a bit unconventional, is not difficult for us to understand if we keep in mind the principles that must be adhered to in interpreting the book correctly, which we will remind you of in a moment. I believe that most Christians today, if they've been Christian for any reasonable length of time, hold to a positional view of the book of Revelation. But in all likelihood, they've probably never read through the entire book of Revelation, let alone studied it with any due diligence. And the ones who seem to resist any teaching of this book, other than the view that has developed to become most popular over the last 160 years, have themselves probably most likely never read through it either. Because to simply read the book in many ways, is to understand the book. It's not intended to intimidate nor to, to discourage the church of Jesus Christ. It's not intended to be mystical, requiring some secret code for some expert to roll in and unlock for us. The key word with which the book begins is apocalypsis. So we're about to study the nature of the apocalypse, and that is 
simply an unveiling, i.e., revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The curtain here is being pulled back to show us sights and sounds all too strange to relate on the surface. We're going to be transported to a different kind of literature from that of the Gospels or the Epistles for which I've tried to discuss in some detail over the past few weeks. And as I said, I will recall those interpretive principles as we proceed every couple of weeks. But for now, it's important for us to grasp that God is showing us something He wants His, verse 1, servants to know. He wants them to understand. Which means He wants us to understand. You know, some have asked, why preach out of the book of Revelation? I mean, it's so controversial. (laughs) Why teach it? Number one, it's part of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for doctrine. That means correct teaching. Correction for reproof and for equipping of the saints. To preach the whole counsel of God means that we preach this book as well. Secondly, there's also a lot of confusion about the book of Revelation. Probably one of the most debated books in the New Testament as to its message, mainly because people overlook three key principles of interpretation. And again, remember, those three keys are as follows. Number one, this is an epistle. It's a literal letter written to a specific audience of people, a particular people in the first century, the seven churches of Asia Minor. Secondly, it's prophetic, providing numerous allusions to the Old Testament. And then thirdly, it's apocalyptic in style. It's a a genre of literature that conveys truth in picture form. Figurative language and imagery. So to read about a locust plague must be interpreted as it would have been in the first century. Not with a 21st century conjecture depicting helicopters and gunships. Can I get an amen on that? Thank you. For instance, when we read of a thousand years, John is not giving us a chronology, but rather a long period of time. There's no reason to interpret 1,000 literally any more than we'd interpret any other number that's used figuratively throughout the book. Nor should we interpret 144,000 literally when we interpret the rest of the numbers figuratively. And thirdly, another reason for studying this book is that there are many uh, Christian, anti-Christian, rather, forces at work in the world today. Always have been, always will be, until Christ returns in glory. We stand in the same position of this book as did the original recipients of this book. We face the same issues around the world. Christians face harassment for the name of Christ. Persecution, trials, temptations, and martyrdom for the faith. You're not going to hear about martyrs for the faith in Jesus Christ on CNN. People die daily because of Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns in the midst of it all. I mean, after all, militant Islam has as its goal the eradication of Christianity. Political agendas and idealistic reasonings of an unbelieving world are a constant threat to a Christian worldview. Remember Paul's warning to the church at Colossae, chapter 2, verse 8? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The entertainment industry distorts values as they propagate their message of pluralism. Truth is relative. Any God and all gods are valid, regardless of their foolish contradictions. They're carrying the minds of weak Christians into captivity. That's what it is to be carried away. Captive. Carried away as booty. 
when you would sack another nation, you would go over and around all of the victims laying on the ground dead, and you would take their gold and silver and their riches and their weaponry, that's booty, and you would carry it away. There's also the threat of the seduction of materialism that lures people into a love affair with this world. See, beloved, the book of Revelation deals with all of this. Yet in the midst of it all, the main focus of the book of Revelation, for which most people miss today, they lose sight of this. It's about Jesus Christ, victor, king of kings, lord of lords, the one who rules and reigns now. May we not miss him in our study of this glorious book of the Bible. Just as the Bible begins with God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it ends with God in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. When we get to the final chapter, we see the consummation of all things. The new Jerusalem descending down out of heaven. A resurrected earth where God's people will reign and rule and worship Him forever. So it's a view of God that we are meant to reap in these closing pages of Holy Scripture. Now remember, Revelation was originally written to a church facing heavy persecution. They were facing death. And the message that they most needed to hear was one that assured them of a conquering hero, of a sovereign, of an almighty king who would sustain his people no matter what, regardless of what they faced. So the focus then of the book of Revelation, beloved, is theological. It's not mystical. It's a theological focus. And the prologue is meant to convey that very message. As it unfolds, notice we see in verse 3 a blessing for those who hear, a blessing for those who read, that stand and read, that hear, and then keep or obey what they've heard. So there's four headings for you outlined in your bulletin. And under each heading will be three subpoints. So let's begin with the prologue in verses 1 through 3. Subpoint number 1 is the transmission, the chain of transmission of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So you have the revelation comes from the Father to Jesus. Jesus revealed it through his angel. Angel communicates it to John. And then John bears witness of the revelation to the servants, his servants, the Lord's servants, that is the church. When we get to chapter and chapters 4 and 5, we see this vividly revealed for us in this glorious transmission of the Father to the Son, and it's described as, you know, who is one that is worthy to open the scroll that has been given? And then John turns in chapter 5 to see what's supposed to look like a lion, lion of the tribe of Judah, but when he turns, he doesn't see a lion, he sees one that is a lamb. It appears to be a lamb as though it had been slain. So who is worthy? Who's capable to take all of history into his hand? Only the lamb who appears as a lion. Only the lion, rather, who appears as the lamb. And he is the lion because he became a lamb. Because he laid down his life for God's elect. So the lion lamb appropriately takes the scroll, opens it seal by seal, so that all these beleaguered churches might see the design and the plan of God. He's the all-knowing one. He's omniscient. He's the all-powerful one. He is omnipotent. This is His plan. History is His, beloved, because it's His story. He's never had a plan B. Things are operating according to plan. They always have and they always will. So through the eyes of John, we see the first step in the chain of transmission. It's the Father who's given this revelation to Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Jesus, in turn, revealed it by sending it through his angel to John and all of Christ's servants. 
Now, the use of an angel, we see that also depicted in the book of Daniel, also in Zechariah. It's very common in apocalyptic literature. And there are parts of Daniel and Zechariah that are apocalyptic, where visions are given and Daniel's beside himself, or what he, what's been given to him to see. So that's the transmission. Next, we move to sub-point number two, the timing of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to show things that must soon take place. So in order to aid the suffering church of Asia Minor, John says to these tempted and very troubled believers of the first century that these things, they will soon take place. And as I said a couple weeks ago, soon means soon. The time that John refers to as being near is the time that Daniel prophesied hundreds of years prior to this. When Daniel saw this vision, he was to seal it up because it was meant for the last days. It was meant for the end. When John receives the vision, he's told not to seal up the vision, but to make it known. You remember in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and Daniel interpreted the dream, he looked at four huge empires beginning with the empire of Babylon led by Nebuchadnezzar. And the fourth kingdom would be made of iron mixed with clay. That's the Roman Empire. For during the reign of the Roman Empire, God himself would then establish an everlasting, an eternal kingdom by the rock he would appoint, which is Jesus Christ. The chief cornerstone and the rock of offense. So we are now living in the days of the kingdom that was inaugurated by the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that kingdom has not been consummated yet in its final form. Because that is, as I said, the new Jerusalem. When all the expressions of the curse will be forever gone. And that is our hopeful anticipation, beloved. But this kingdom has been established. That everlasting kingdom was inaugurated. We're living in it now. The epoch of time in which Revelation is concerned here is the beginning of the end. And the beginning of the end began with the first coming of Jesus Christ. What did Peter preach in Acts chapter 2? This is the last day. Jesus, the king, established his kingdom. He installed his kingdom in his arrival. Therefore, he said, the time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe in the gospel. So as citizens of his kingdom, we testify of the present reign of Jesus in the world today. Followers of Christ make up his kingdom. We honor him as Lord of lords and King of kings. And we therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now many Christians don't understand the kingdom reign and rule of Christ at present because they think that we should somehow be exempt from tribulation in order to be participants of that glorious kingdom. But it's very important that we remember that in the apocalypse given to John, as well as in the gospel of John, that the death and apparent defeat of Jesus in reality is his very victory. Over what? Over sin and death. He is victor. He is the conquering hero. G.K. Beale, one of the foremost scholars on the book of Revelation today, if not the foremost scholar, writes this, quote, The Lamb's followers are to recapitulate the model of his ironic victory in their own lives. By enduring through tribulation, they reign in the invisible kingdom of the Messiah. They exercise kingship in the midst of their suffering, just as Christ did from the cross. Christians are called to be conquerors by emulating in their own lives the archetypal archetypal triumph of Jesus. Even the notion of Christ and the church reigning ironically in the midst of their suffering. Don't miss this part. And the idea of unbelieving persecutors experiencing spiritual defeat in the midst of their physical victories 
demonstrates the wisdom of God and point accordingly to his glory, end quote. That's a brilliant statement. Brilliant insight. So what appears to be victory for the world is in reality a storing up, beloved, of God's wrath. Day by day. And what appears to be defeat as we spread his gospel throughout this world is actually an increase to his kingdom. Because it's about in here. It's not about out there. He gave Peter the keys that unlocked the kingdom. To take the gospel to all nations and spread the truth of Jesus Christ and to make disciples of Christ's followers. Now, as we read through the Revelation, we see that a common theme within is that of a witness. And Jesus himself is the most excellent witness. And we read that in chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 14, chapter 19, verse 11. So Revelation, therefore, aims to strengthen the testimony of its readers. Because persecution threatens to to suppress the witnesses of Christ. Because you see, beloved, following Christ may include martyrdom. It did for these people. Revelation 17.6, look what it says. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So this kind of persecution was imminent. These things must soon take place, wrote John to seven churches of Asia Minor. Beale comments again, quote, The focus of quickness and nearness in the first three verses is primarily on inauguration of prophetic fulfillment and its ongoing aspect. Not on nearness of consummated fulfillment, though the latter is secondarily in mind as leading from the former, end quote. In other words, what he's saying is that the text is not saying simply that these things will all be fulfilled soon. But rather is saying that the beginning of these things is soon. As a matter of fact, it's already begun. So you can see, seven churches of Asia, as these events begin to transpire, you can be encouraged in the midst of it all. Because we have a king. A conquering, ruling king. So in the midst of all temptation and persecution, you can take heed to these words. You must read, hear, and heed these words. So he promises a blessing, notice, to those who read, to those who hear and those who keep these things which will soon take place. Blessed, verse 3, is the one who reads. Now, when John wrote this, what he didn't have in mind was a 21st century American Christian sitting in his lazy boy reading through the book of Revelation in between naps. Okay? Like, which happens to me sometimes. Which will happen this afternoon, I guarantee you. I'll sit in my chair and I will read and I will fall asleep and I will wake back up and pick up where I left off and I'll do it again probably three or four times. (laughs) In the first century, someone would stand up in a service much like this one and would read because no one else had a copy. He would open the scroll and he would read aloud. And actually, when when the apostles were gone to heaven, the position of reader was part of the church. There was an office for the reader of the scriptures. Manuscripts were rare in that day, and many people couldn't read, so you had a reader that would stand and read. Blessed is he who reads. It would be like me today. I'd be blessed because I'm reading this revelatory truth of God. Notice also, blessed are the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear A blessing pronounced on those who sit and listen, that which is being read. Literally, read like this. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear and obey. You know, many people hear, but they don't obey. Many people hear, but they don't listen. Many hear, but don't comprehend. Many hear and don't care. Many here and want to go to their picnic. You heard Anthony preach last week. 
Christians will sit for three hours in a concert. Young Christians will stand for hours at some rock concert. But man, in church, your back gets sore for some reason. You don't complain out there, right? Watch a football game for three plus hours. But don't put me through the torture or listen to the Word of God for an hour. That's not the case here, though, I know. Amen? That is not a manipulative tactic on my part, by the way. (laughs) It's evident in this church, seriously. So the emphasis of Revelation is a call to obedience. We'll see it time and time again as we read the seven letters. But far too many American Christians come to this book with presuppositions. First, they've been taught that all of Revelation is yet to be fulfilled. That's what I was taught. Therefore, to support that, they've also been taught that believers will be secretly removed from the earth before all the events of Revelation take place. I was also taught that. So why then this promise of blessing to those who heed, to those who keep that which is written, if the church disappears somewhere around chapter 4, as I was taught? (laughs) I would study these things and look, this doesn't line up. Yeah, we'll be raptured all right when Christ comes, but he's going to take us up and we're going to keep on coming with him, like I said. But I don't see where this taking away and going away for a while and then coming back. So since we're called to obey, they, they, they have to conclude that, well, to keep these things must mean that it's a kind of academic pursuit of understanding that cracks the code of the revelation. That's why you have all these quote-unquote experts. And you've got mass amounts of Christians coming to hear about Antichrist who complain about sitting for an hour to hear about Jesus Christ. So this is a prophecy whose words are to be kept. This is obedience, a call of obedience to the church of Jesus Christ. What's there to obey if you're gone? When we we read those letters, you hear a common theme. It's to the church. Repent of sin. Repent of complacency. Repent of compromise. Repent of cowardice. And stand fast. Remain faithful in allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's the call. Why? Because only those who overcome, conquerors, those who overcome will be proven to be more than mere confessors of Jesus Christ, but conquerors in Christ, i.e. true believers. That's the message. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, to the one who conquers, i.e. overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2, 11, to the one who conquers, You will not be hurt by the second death. And we could go on and on and on to those seven churches and read. You see, every portion of the Bible, beloved, is is aimed at the glory of Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, what that creates is a life change. You see, the, the dynamic work of regeneration that's being born again, which is all the work of God, that is so supernatural that it produces something. It produces conversion. So someone who's regenerated, having been born again from above, is converted and is continually being sanctified or converted into the image of Jesus Christ. There's fruit. So here the Father gives the revelation to Jesus, the things which must soon take place. Jesus sends it through his angel and communicates it to John, who bears witness of everything he what? Not what he heard, but what he saw. Subpoint number three type of literature. It's prophetic vision. Verse 2. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Now, generally speaking, the word here is used in connection to the word of God. Everywhere else we read. It's highly unusual to see the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This is the word of God which was given to show his servants the things which must soon take place. So the fact that this is prophetic vision, in other words, apocalyptic literature, should inform us how we go about interpreting it. So when you come across teachings on the book of Revelation, you hear some guy say, you must interpret 
the book of Revelation literally wherever possible, that becomes very problematic. We just read about a woman drunk with the blood of the saints. <laughs> Literal or figurative? Thank you. See, if you're reading Romans, it's literal. You're reading Acts where, where, where Paul went into Greece before the, in the Areopagus there and uh, spoke and dialogued with the philosophers of the day. He literally did that. Jonah was literally swallowed by a great fish that God prepared. That is not allegory. That's actual history. It's actual prose. It's historical narrative to be interpreted literally. Because revelation is prophetic vision, we must interpret it differently. Now, again, G.K. Beale, he said this in a, in a lecture. He said, quote, The only verse I take in the revelation literally is the very first verse because it tells that the rest of the book is to be understood figuratively, end quote. <laughs> now, he's speaking with a bit of exaggeration there, no doubt, but for the sake of effect, but he's making his point, and it's well taken. Hopefully. We are reading words that express vision, which God gave John to see, to pass on to the church. Now, there's a very beneficial illustration of this in understanding vision in, as a matter of fact, the book of Acts. So if you would, turn to chapter 10 of Acts. Now, I'll kind of set the scene of what's going on here. There was a man by the name of Cornelius, an upright man, a Gentile man, a high-ranking officer in the Roman army, and he, he had a certain affection for God and a love for God, and he prayed to God daily, and God sent an angel to speak to Cornelius, and he said, go and send to Joppa for one named Peter. Why? Because he is a greater expression of who I am. <laughs> Meanwhile, Peter is in Joppa. Cornelius, Caesarea. It's about noon. So Peter's hungry and he goes up at the sixth hour, which is noon, to pray. And he goes up on the rooftop. While he's praying, the scripture says he falls into a trance. And what he sees in the vision is a sheet descending out of heaven. And on it are all kinds of animals, many animals. And God says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter says, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean or common. God responds, what God has cleansed, do not call common. There's a knock on the door. Cornelius' men are there looking for Peter. But what Peter knew is that he understood something of the vision. And the vision and the reality of the pictures of the vision is that Gentiles are not to be viewed as unclean. The sheet was not a literal sheet, so Peter wasn't scratching his head going, how on earth is this sheet holding up all these beasts? Why aren't animals falling through it or flying off and so on? He understood this was a vision. Because in a vision, it's possible to have animals descending on a sheet. This descending from heaven. See, visions don't function the same way as real physical life. And notice here, the literal meaning of this vision was not the ultimate meaning of the vision. Unclean animals were a picture to something greater. Notice what Peter didn't do. He did not literally go out and start killing animals and start a sanctified barbecue <laughs> with his Jewish buddies. The point of the vision was that people were now being viewed who were I'm sorry, who were viewed as unclean. The point is they're not unclean. Even though the Lord used unclean animals in the vision to draw the analogy. The actual meaning of the vision became apparent later on and certainly as history unfolded. You have Paul as the, the minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world. But look at some of these uh, verses and acts real quickly. The voice came to him, verse 15, again a second time, what God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, verse 16. The thing was taken up at once into heaven. 
While Peter was pondering the vision, verse 19, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter goes down and uh, he follows them. They enter into Caesarea. In verse 28, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Via what? A vision of unclean animals. Verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. So these things help us in understanding what prophetic vision is, beloved. And when God provided supernatural visions, anytime He's done that throughout biblical history, the normal laws of the universe are suspended. Because it's a vision, it's non-corporeal, it's not physical, nor is it literal. We'll see this over and over again in the book of Revelation. Heading number two, greeting. The greeting. Subpoint number one, we see an author. He identifies himself as John. He's one of the twelve. He's one of the three that made up the inner circle of Christ's closest disciples, Peter, James, and John himself. He refers to himself in the gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He knew of the love of Christ. And he loved Christ in return. And who was the only one standing at the foot of the cross of the twelve? John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. With Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, sub-point number one is the author. Sub-point number two are the recipients of this letter. Seven churches that are in Asia. That's modern-day Turkey. Now, there are more than seven churches in Asia Minor. There are probably upward of 10 or 12. But since seven is symbolic, it's the number of completion, he, he refers to the universal church by way of these seven. It's a standard exhortation in letter form here. A literal letter. It was written to these seven and an extension for all believers thereafter. Notice what he says. Common greeting. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Grace and peace. You see, as believers, beloved, the only reason that you have peace with God is because you've been granted the grace of God. Revealed through Jesus Christ, the Son. Grace is unmerited favor. The reason that you stand here forgiven, the reason you stand here justified, sanctified, one day to be glorified, is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ who became the propitiation of the Father, the satisfaction of the Father, is He unleashed His wrath upon the Son. You stand righteous. That's grace. And because of that grace, you have peace with God. Before Christ, we were at war with God. He was at war with us. Those who are outside of Christ are at war with God, whether they realize it or not. And once you have peace with God, He grants you the peace of God. So the anxieties and the guilt that gripped you in the past, you now have peace. Grace and peace. So this letter has all the customary parts of any standard greeting that we'll find in the other epistles. They show themselves again in uh, chapter 22, verse 6, chapter 22, verse 7, verse 10, verse 21. So once again, once again, very important, the book of Revelation cannot mean to us what it never meant to those original recipients. Notice. It's from the Father and the seven spirits. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. What are there, nine persons of the Godhead now? Seven spirits? I thought it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is it Father, Son, and seven spirits? No. Again, Revelation is symbolic. Numbers are important in, in, in conveying the imagery that's involved here. Now, some translations render it the sevenfold spirit of God. The sevenfold spirit. Not seven holy spirits, but sevenfold spirit. Which means he's everywhere present. Omniscience, omnipotence, all wisdom. 
He knows and He sees all. He is the sevenfold Spirit of God. And what is the role or the ministry of God the Holy Spirit? To point to God the Son. If you're ever in a church and all they talk about is the Holy Spirit, 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 you're not in a spiritual church. Jesus said in John 15, 26 to his disciples, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. A spirit-led church is one that preaches Jesus Christ. Subpoint number three in the greeting is the substance of the letter itself. And it is Jesus Christ. Seven spirits are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. And that leads us right into the next heading, the doxology, chapter, uh, verse 5b through 6. We see a threefold picture of Christ. First, we see the faithful witness. Now, let's go back to where we were this morning in the opening reading. Our brother Aaron read from Psalm 89. And there in Psalm 89, we see a promise to David in God's covenant and oath to David. Are you with me? In Psalm 89, 37, we see specifically that that is a a, a promise of a faithful witness. If we back up to verse 27 of Psalm 89, he's speaking of David. Israel's greatest king. And it's a promise that will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings on earth. So Psalm 89 is speaking of David originally or literally. But when we read the Old Testament, we read it in the exposed light of the New Testament. So reading about David in the Old Testament, we see that this is reiterated about Jesus Christ verbatim. Showing us that David was a type of his greater son that was to come. Now, Jesus was 100% God. But he was also 100% man who would descend from this greatest king of Israel, a human being, a sinner. Through his loins, his lineage would come Messiah. So the true king of Israel is Jesus Christ. The true man after God's own heart is Jesus Christ who would descend from this man, David, according to the flesh. Therefore, Paul cries out in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the ultimate faithful witness. David certainly was a man after God's own heart, but David was fallible. David was a sinner, just like you, just like me. Jesus, however, is the only one who is the true and faithful witness. So the purpose of this glorious description is to encourage us, just as it was these churches here in Asia Minor, that you don't stand outside of Christ. He's not detached from you. The faithful true witness is in you. You are in Him. We are in Him. Paul says in Ephesians, we are united with Christ, beloved. You know you're not united with Christ. You're in Him. He's in you. We're one with Him. So because we're in Him, we also to some degree share in this description of Him. I mean, after all, the Bible says He declares you what? Free from all blame, positionally righteous. That's what you are in Christ. Flawless, blameless. Not only does God see when He looks at you the removal of sin in your life as far as the East is from the West, but He also sees His Son. He looks at you, He sees Jesus, the true and faithful witness. What did Jesus say to his disciples in Acts 1, verse 8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So as believers in Christ, the true and faithful witness, we too can be true and faithful witnesses also. 
Notice next, he's the firstborn from the dead, point two. He's Alpha and Omega. Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. First and the last. He's creator of all things. He's the head of his church. Firstborn from the dead. Preeminent in all things. He's the first fruits of the dead. Why that description? If you think of a farmer... He goes out and he sows seed. And at harvest time, something appears. Something is made visible. First fruits. And first fruits inform the farmer that there's a whole harvest that will follow. So Jesus is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest, beloved. If you're in Christ, when you die... You will go into the intermediate state. You will be absent from this body. This body will go to the grave. You'll go be with the Lord. When He comes back, that body's going to be raised up, brought back with the Spirit, and you'll have a body like His fit for eternity. The hope of the resurrection. He's the first fruits of that glorious resurrection. So we will participate as part of that harvest, you see. Because we have risen and we're united with Him, we too will rise, beloved with resurrected bodies. We'll see Him, we'll see Him as He is, and we see Him as He is, and we will then be like Him. Oh, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, Paul said, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible my, my, I, may I attain the resurrection from the dead. All because of the faithful witness and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, beloved. It's all Christ. You see, it's all Christ. Thirdly, He's ruler of kings on earth. He rules and reigns now. At the end of his letters, he provides a promise to those who conquer, to overcome. We'll look at these seven letters. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So God's redeemed people enjoy God's rule as priests because we have intimate access to Him. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. In the future, we will reign. But even now, we who are in Christ, in some sense, we rule with Him, beloved. So, in another sense, we've also been partakers of the first resurrection. You've been spiritually raised from the dead. New creatures in Christ. Ephesians 2 reads, verse 5, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is all about your position in Christ. That's part of your position in Christ. So we share in the glorious benefits of Christ because by grace, beloved, you are in Christ. He's not detached from you. You are in Him. You're united with the Son of glory. Look at verse 6. He made us a kingdom. Priests. To His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Who was this promise first given to? The Israelites, back in Exodus, chapter 19, verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the fact that this, which was first spoken to Israel, is now spoken to us, means that we, the church, Abraham's seed, Abraham's seed, those who've looked upon Christ in faith from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as Revelation chapter 5 describes, be they Jew or Gentile, make up God's true Israel. We are united in the one true vine. That's Jesus Christ. I'm the true vine, he said. You are the branches. The one who is the true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been grafted in, if you're a Gentile, which we are as wild olive branches, into the one olive tree. There's just one. It's Christ. This makes us partakers of his life. Notice what Peter said. You are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are whose people? God's people. In Christ. If you are in Christ, you are, beloved, a holy nation. You are a chosen race. You are His special people. You are, beloved, true Israel. Oh, this is replacement theology. No, it's not. This is continuation theology. You're either in Abraham's seed, Jew or Gentile, or you're not. This has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has everything to do with spirituality. Being in the one who gives spiritual life. As a matter of fact, when we get to Revelation 2 and 3, notice what Jesus says to ethnic Jews who weren't believers. To Smyrna. I know your tribulation and I know your poverty, but you are rich. The church of Smyrna was suffering greatly. They were poor. You know what he said? You're rich. Things do not appear as they seem in the book of Revelation. The church that thought it was rich and had it all going on, Jesus said, you are dead. Naked. You're destitute. Notice. I know your tribulation, Smyrna, and your poverty, but you are rich. And I also know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. The church of Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So what is this? Is this a group of Gentiles walking around saying, hey, I'm an ethnic Jew, and they're just saying, you're a liar? Would that be like me coming up and saying, hey, I'm Mexican? Thank you, thank you. You call me a liar. I'm a mutt. Part Irish, part Norwegian, a little German. What he's saying here is this. If you're a descendant of Abraham ethnically, ethnically, you know, according to the flesh, though you may descend from one of the 12 tribes of Israel, And if you've rejected the seed of Abraham, which is none other than Jesus Christ, you can claim your Jewishness all you want, but you're a liar. You're not a member of true Israel, he said. Paul refers to true believers in Galatians 6.16 as the Israel of God. We're a kingdom of priests because of Christ originally spoken to the nation of Israel, but the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, as with all other promises of old, find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, those who are united in Him only. One way of salvation, beloved. One. The seed of Abraham, who's Jesus Christ. So we bear that description. We are in Christ. We're not brothers of modern-day Judaism. Judaism today is as heretical and blasphemous as are the JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, or Islam, because they all reject Christ. That is why Jesus called them a synagogue of Satan. It's Christ. Everything is Christ, Christ, Christ. Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, one way of salvation, beloved. And you're in Him. Last heading, which we don't have time for. I'll give you the three subpoints real quickly. <laughs> three subpoints. Last heading prophecy. There's a warning. There's worldly sorrow. And there's the one who's the author and finisher of it all. We'll pick this up next week. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him in all the tribes of the earth. Not just the tribes of the land. Tribes of the earth. They will wail on account of him. This is not repentant wailing. This is worldly sorrow. Warning, he's coming. 
He's coming in the clouds. That language takes us back to Daniel, where the Son of God uh, um, ascends in clouds. In Zechariah, he descends in clouds. Um, Acts chapter 1, he ascended to the Father, and the angel said, why do you look up in heaven? And he'll, the one who went away this way, he'll come back this way. He's coming in the clouds. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This is worldly sorrow. These are those who cry out for the rocks to fall on them because they hate him, they've rejected him, they've pursued against him. And have you ever met someone on their deathbed who's old, who've rejected Christ time and time again? I've seen people converted on their deathbed, but I've also people, seen people gnash their teeth at him, beloved. It's a frightening thing to experience. You're dot, you are moments away from taking your last breath. And you'll grit your teeth at the Lord of glory. They, fall for, they, pray for, they call out the rocks to fall upon them. They wail on account of him. But even so, all men. I'm the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. He is the one who is the author. He is the one who is the finisher of it all. He holds history in his hand because it's his story. So what does Revelation reveal for us this morning? Bottom line, that Christ rules over all of history. As the beginning, the middle, and the end. Knowing that he stands above all and controls all, that he's conquered all, enables us, beloved, to live faithfully. That's the warning to the churches. Live faithfully. We don't have to live in fear anymore. We don't have to live in paranoia. You don't have to constantly build up these conspiracy theories every time you pick up the newspaper. We are kingdom children of God, priests of the Most High. So many Christians become slaves of anxiety every time they pick up the paper. They're going to shut down the church. Homosexuals are going to overtake the earth. They're going to... Come on. This political agenda and that political agenda, what are we going to do? I build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So in the, amid trials, amid tribulation, temptation and trouble, we can conquer, we can persevere. So therefore we are told, blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in the revelation. So we live in this epoch of time between the first and second comings of Christ. It's called the last days. They were, the last days were established then and we're in them now. So all believers will face the attack of the beast. All believers will face the persuasiveness of the false prophet and perhaps destruction of the harlot of Babylon. People are facing it today. So Revelation is not really a linear unfolding of events between the first and second comings of Christ. It is a message that fits with every generation of believers as he writes out for us, draws up for us a picture, a painting, a message, an imagery. He's the ruler. He's the king. So the center of the book is God. He reigns. He's omnipotent. He is over all of history. And all the while, I close with this. As I said, he's not detached from you, but he is in the midst of everything that his church experiences, beloved. He's in the midst of her. In your victories, he's there. In your pain, he's there. In your trials, he's there. In your persecution, he's there. He's not above it or around it. He's in the midst of those that are his. Because we're in him and he's in us. The true and faithful witness. First fruits of the resurrection from the dead. The king of rulers on earth. We're his priests. In his kingdom. For his glory. So again... There is not a single inch of the whole terrain of our human existence over which Christ does not proclaim what? Mine. Mine. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that everything is yours because you are the beginning and the end. And I pray for encouragement to be built up within your church, your people today. And as we come before the table this morning, may we remember. 
May we, Lord, remember what you have accomplished on our behalf. May we remember who you are and who we are in you. May we be quick, Lord, to keep short accounts of confession with you because we've been made right, because we are righteous by the finished work of Jesus. May we be quick to confess our sins because we've been forgiven. Remembering that you sent your Son, Father, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, that we can experience, Lord, this time of communion at the table together is the bride of Christ. For anyone here, I ask, Lord, who does not know you, who may know about you but hasn't been born again from above, I ask that by the work and power of your Spirit that you'll regenerate them this morning, that they'd be able to see with clarity their sin under the, the, the brightness and the glory of your holiness, that they are at war. And the only way to have peace is a surrendered life to Christ, the one who bore your wrath in the place of all those who will believe. We thank you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.